You're listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Belinda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. Fifty years ago, President Nixon appointed Warren Burger as Chief Justice to the United States Supreme Court. Nixon would go on to appoint three additional judges. He believed these appointments to be one of the central pillars of his presidential legacy. Historians like our guest today believe these appointments shaped the modern court. His name is Michael Bobelian. He covers the Supreme Court at Forbes.com and is author of Battle for the Marble Palace, Abe Fortas, Earl Warren, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Forging of the Modern Supreme Court. Michael Bobelian, welcome. Thank you for having me. Just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the ba- Battle for the, Mar- for the Marble Palace? Yes, um, it started a, a few years ago, and I was perusing the internet, and for, I don't remember the, the reason, but I was looking at a list of Supreme Court nominees, uh, and it was on the U.S. Senate website, and it's still there. It's been updated since then, but it's still the same site, and the nominees were dating back to George Washington, and what I noticed uh, really struck me as something odd um, Throughout the 20th century, most of the nominees were confirmed within days or weeks. Uh, one of them was confirmed in a single day, um, and often through uh, voice votes, where the Senate would just uh, together unanimously just say yay or nay. Uh, so it seemed like a very cavalier, casual process. Um, and I'd gone to law school in the 90s. I remember the Robert Bork uh, confirmation fight in 1987. And I started to wonder, well, what what happened? Well, how could it have been so uh, so different through much of the 20th century? And as I looked further, I saw that these, these differences were even more stark than I thought. Uh, hearings, for instance, were often very short, some lasting just five minutes. Uh, nominees weren't put through background checks or ideological litmus tests. And then all of it changed dramatically in 1968 when Lyndon Johnson nominated uh, Abe Fortas, who had been already an associate justice, to become the chief justice for the retiring Earl Warren. And if you look at the list, you'll see that there was an immense discombobulation and revolution, if you will, in the confirmation process. And that's what I wanted to explore in terms of what happened in 1968 all the way through 1971 uh, between two different presidential administrations, four different um, uh, nominations where what seemed like a quick, easy, cavalier process where the Senate had largely rubber-stamped nominations to become this all-out political battle. And that was the question I wanted to answer. And then the answers, which we can get into, not only uh, led to an understanding, a better understanding of that era, but a much better understanding of how uh, confirmations have played out ever since then over the past half century. Where did you uh, conduct your research for all of this? Uh, most of the research were at um, 20 different archives, uh, presidential libraries, the Johnson Library, Nixon Library, as well as the Ford Library. And that was because uh, Gerald Ford was a uh, House Minority Leader in 1970 when there was an attempt to impeach Justice William Douglas. And Ford was sort of the, the point man on the effort. So I went to the Ford Residential Library for that. Uh, the Johnson and Nixon Libraries for their uh, nominations and all the all the documents and oral histories that are available on their nominees and the ensuing confirmation fights. And then outside of the presidents, uh, I went and searched 
various justices, such as Earl Warren, Abe Fortas, William Brennan, and a couple of others. And most of those are at the Library of Congress. Uh, Abe Fortas's are at Yale's. And then um, the final people that really had uh, valuable archives were the senators involved in a lot of these big battles in the Senate over the, over the Supreme Court. And most of those dealt with confirmations, but in the 50s and 60s, they also dealt with other legislative actions targeting the Warren Court. So put it all together, it was about 20 archives. And then you look at the periodicals from the era, you know, the major newspapers, magazines, and even sometimes a transcript of um, television news shows. And, and those mostly came from electronic databases that I had access to it, you know, at a university or a, at the New York Public Library. And then from there, uh, you know, books, uh, law review articles, uh, academic articles, sort of the secondary sources that give you both the context of the era, but, and, but also fill in details uh, that you can't necessarily find otherwise. And I always give people an example of a scholar did an, um, an article in 1972 and got to interview people who were alive then that are no longer around they, in, in essence, become a primary source for those interviews. So put those all together. Uh, I think my bibliography and endnotes together are close to 100 pages, but that's that's how I, I kind of uh, put the whole story together. Looking at the title for your book, Battle for the Marble Palace, um, why do we consider in our in American politics and our society the Supreme Court, why is there always a battle behind it or, or appears to be? Right. Well, there, there wasn't always a battle. I think that's one of the, the central themes of my book. Um, and the battles really started, you have FDR with the court packing in the 30s, but really they became a perpetual battle uh, starting in the late 60s. And I think the reason why is because uh, as a country, for better or worse, uh, but it, it does differentiate us from other democracies in that we have granted our highest court a lot more power than most countries do. Uh, in most countries, the court rarely is the final arbiter of these thorny constitutional questions, whether they involve uh, abortion or gay rights or uh, the power of the president versus Congress and things like that. In most uh, democracies, it's the legislative branch and to some extent the executive branch that is the final arbiter of those issues. So we have granted our Supreme Court uh, immense power and when an institution has power, uh, people are going to want to control or influence that institution. So just from a big picture point of view, that's the reason why we have these battles. Uh, in terms of what specifically took place in the 50s and 60s that led to these confirmation fights, uh, the Warren Court really uh, was a revolutionary uh, court. Uh, everyone remembers Brown v. Board and, and desegregation, but in many facets of American life, whether it was putting an end to the excesses of McCarthyism in the 50s, uh, banning prayer in schools, coming up with the one-person, one-vote legislative district, of course, Miranda and all the rulings on law and order, uh, as well as obscenity. And so you have all these areas of American life which were upended by the Warren Court. And by the late 60s, people really start to see the power of the court and what it can achieve outside of the traditional political process. Um, and to critics, that meant that the court was acting as a supreme legislative branch and subverting the will of the state governments and Congress and so on. So when people see that and really come to recognize it, I'm not just not just Brown and, and civil rights, but in all these areas uh, that the court tackled, 
then people realize, again, that if you can control the court, if you can influence it, then you can direct public policy in a way that you know is favorable to your interests. Your book focuses on four central characters, um, Justices Abe Fortas and Earl Warren and Presidents Johnson and President Nixon. Uh, let's start off with uh, Justice Fortas. Could you give me, uh, could you give our audience a little uh, idea of uh, what, his, what his background was and, how, and what sure. was his view of American jurisprudence? Sure. I mean, he's like the classic American uh, success story. He is a um, son of uh, Jewish immigrants living in Memphis, uh, came from very modest means, but he was brilliant and he was very hardworking. And he went to Yale, graduated Yale Law School, graduated second in his class. And he basically had this um, superstar career in the law. He worked uh, in the government during the New Deal. And then he opened up, uh, he co-founded one of the nation's leading law firms uh, after World War II. And he was known as not just a great lawyer. In fact, he was called a, a brain surgeon by his colleagues, the person you'd call in when all else fails. Uh, so he was this brilliant lawyer, and he was the he was assigned by the court to argue in the case Gideon v. Wainwright, the, which set the pre- precedent for having lawyers for uh, indigent clients. Um, but he was also a great political advisor, and he, he advised LBJ throughout his uh, career in politics. And as I said, he was known as a brilliant lawyer, a political advisor, a really savvy Washington operator. And at the same time, he was uh, a reliable liberal. Uh, and when LBJ appointed him to the court in 1965, he wanted a reliable liberal jurist uh, on the court, and Fortas fit that mold. So put it all together, uh, he seemed to be an ideal candidate in LBJ's eyes. It also helped that he was very close to LBJ. They were not only uh, he wasn't only LBJ's lawyer and political advisor, he was also his close friend. So he put all of that together, his talent, his relationship with the president, and his uh, you know various talents, if you, went, you, if you will, not just in the law, but in politics. And he made for an ideal uh, nominee in LBJ's eyes to become the next chief justice. Why did, he was already an associate justice by 1968. Why did Johnson make it more seemingly difficult on himself by uh, choosing Abe Fortas as chief justice and leaving the associate, um, um, basically opening up a new confirmation process uh, for both? You know, that's a great question. And in hindsight, he made a great blunder. Um, I think what had happened were a couple of things. One, he, he assumed, you know, he was known as the master of the Senate long before, you know, the great Robert Caro uh, called him that. Uh, so he assumed that he would get his way with the Senate. And it was a fair assumption, right? He had passed those civil rights bills that no one thought could ever get past the Southern filibusters. He had passed the, the Great Society uh, in the mid-1960s. So I think he assumed, and just about everyone in Washington assumed, that he would have his way in the Senate. And then history also pointed to an easy uh, confirmation for Fortis. As I said when we started the conversation, throughout the 20th century, uh, nominees had been confirmed with great ease. In fact, there was only one rejection, that of John Parker in 1930, uh, leading up to Fortas. And Fortas in 1965 navigated these tepid waters very easily. He was confirmed in about two weeks through a voice vote, where, as I said, the whole Senate just stood up and uh, yelled yay in his favor. And his hearings lasted just three hours, and he was thrown softball questions 
during the hearings. And there was no background checks or litmus tests. At all those things that uh, had been the case, LBJ and others would assume would still be the case, that all of a sudden the Senate wouldn't come up with all this new degree of uh, level of scrutiny. So LBJ assumed that both his uh, power over the legislature, as well as past history of how easily people were confirmed by the Senate, I think he believed that it would be a shoo-in uh, in picking Fortas, even though some of it his advisors said, you know, this is going to be tough. You're, you're in the last few months of your presidency. Um, the, the opposition in the Senate feels like you might be weaker than you were in the past. Maybe you pick someone else. Maybe you pick a centrist or perhaps even a, a, a Republican to ease the, the confirmation. And he just, he didn't want to go in that direction. Uh, ideologically, he wanted a liberal. And in terms of his confidence level, it, it had remained very high uh, in that he thought he would definitely get Fortis confirmed. The perception was that Fortis was the sort of characterization and the epitome of radicalism on the court. Was, was this a correct assessment? No, I think, I think he was a middle-of-the-road liberal for the people who were on the court. You're talking Thurgood Marshall, Earl Warren, William Douglas, Hugo Black. I don't think he was any more radical than, than they were. But to many elements of American society, particularly in 1968, that liberal uh, majority on the court seemed radical. So within the context of other jurists, I think he was uh, a liberal jurist, but you know, no, nothing in the extreme. But within the context of the critics of the liberals on the court, yes, he would, he would seem to be, he would appear to be a radical. And if you look at the polling data from 1968, the court had reached its uh, bottom in terms of favorability, uh, the, the positive uh, emotions that American public had towards it. And the majority of Americans wanted conservative jurists on the court at that point. So, for, you know, from that point of view, you could say, yes, he was someone whose ideology was definitely frowned upon and thought to be too liberal. But in terms of people within the court, he was, you know, he wasn't any more liberal than the other people I named. Could you take us through how his um, nomination to chief justice was rejected and how he ultimately resigned even his associate uh, justice uh, position? Sure. Um, so he's nominated by LBJ in June of 1968. And the opposition was led by uh, Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, and I think most people will remember him because he went on to serve for uh, decades longer, uh, as well as uh, Robert Griffin, who was then a little-known little senator. He was a freshman senator out of Michigan. Uh, and those were sort of the Republicans who um, breached the, the orders of their own uh, minority leader, Everett Dirksen. So they led the Republican charge against Fortas, and then they were allied with Southern Democrats who you know, despised the Warren Court because of the civil rights rulings uh, in the 50s and 60s. So they made a few arguments, and some of them sound familiar now that we've had um, um, recent battles with Mayor Garland and Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. And one of the arguments was that uh, LBJ was a lame duck because he was in his last months in office. Uh, it was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek argument, and they even admitted that in the papers and the archives. You I, I found that. Um, but they said since LBJ is only going to serve a few more months, the next president should select uh, Earl Warren's successor. So they made that argument. Then they said that Fortas was LBJ's crony. Um, and in that regard, they were right in that the two were probably too close 
by modern day standards, um, because Fortas maintained a very close relationship with Johnson even after he became an associate justice. Uh, he continued to attend cabinet meetings. He helped write speeches. He helped draft legislation. He gave legal advice. At one point, the congressman had called the White House uh, and asked about a pending bill, and the secretary said, well, the president is, is out of the office right now, but Justice Fortas is handling, it, handling the bill for the White House. So in that regard, they were correct. Um, and those two arguments that LBJ was a lame duck and Fortas was a crony, as well as questions about Warren's uh, retirement, and it gets very convoluted, but whether he actually did retire or, or not, they kind of had a holding pattern. They had a delay pattern. And so there was no quick confirmation. And then by the summer of 68, the hearings begin. And Fortas is basically attacked for everything the Warren court had done. And this is, this is an essential part of my book. A lot of the book deals with previous legislative uh, attacks and criticism of the Warren court. But the fact was that all of those attacks fell just short of being able to undercut the court or reduce its jurisdiction or all these other attempts made to kind of weaken the Warren court. And now Earl Warren's enemies, because they couldn't reach him, they were going for his heir apparent, who was Fortas. So Fortas is attacked for the law and order rulings, for the obscenity rulings, uh, for the ban in school prayer, even though in most of those cases, he wasn't even on the court yet. And those attacks really uh, bludgeon him. Uh, and then there were some unorthodox tactics used. Uh, obscenity was a big uh, culture war issue of the day, uh, long before abortion and so on. Uh, and what Strom Thurmond did was he held what was called the Fortis Film Festival, where he broadcast some of these um, X-rated movies uh, within the Senate's rooms to showcase um, how immoral, if you will, Fortis and the liberals were on the court for allowing these movies to be aired. Um, and that really hurt Fortis. That film festival uh, lasted about six, seven weeks, and he was called Mr. Obscenity. And that really hurt his standing in front of the public. And all of this culminated in a filibuster. And there have been 160-plus nominations to the court up to that time. And filibuster, uh, Fortis was the first person to be a target of a filibuster. And ultimately, that filibuster triumphed, and his his nomination was, was withdrawn by, uh, by LBJ. So as I said, a lot of parallels to what happened in recent years with Garland and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Could you tell us about Earl Warren, um, sort of his uh, perspective, uh, his, ju his judicial philosophy, um, ultimately who he was and how he was appointed to the court and his tenure there? Right. Uh, he's, a, he's a complicated figure because he's the type of justice that we don't get anymore. He was a um, um, district attorney of Alameda County uh, in Northern California, and then the attorney general of California, and then the three-time governor of California. It was the first three-term uh, governor there. And he won re-election with more than 90% of the vote, which is an astounding accomplishment uh, for a statewide election. And he was a very bipartisan person. Uh, he was progressive. Uh, he was a Republican, but he was uh, progressive-minded and very bipartisan. And by that, I mean, uh, if an idea had small government roots, he'd be for that. If it had big government roots, he'd be for that, too. Um, so he, you can't easily classify him or categorize him using modern-day labels. So um, in 1952, Eisenhower is 
nominated to be president, becomes president, and he promised Warren a job on the Supreme Court. And then when the first opening took place, when the Chief Justice Fred Vinson died unexpectedly of a heart attack, Warren was given the job in the fall of 1953. And at the time, you know, I, I looked through a lot of material to see, did anyone or could have anyone predicted what a revolutionary jurist he would turn out to be and what a liberal jurist he would turn out to be. And the fact was, no one predicted it. Uh, there's a lot of material from Eisenhower as well as his attorney general who vetted Warren. And when they looked at Warren, they said he was a middle-of-the-road Republican, much like Eisenhower was. And they really thought that would be the case. And in many ways, they were right. Uh, Warren, as the attorney general and district attorney all those years, he was very tough on crime. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover thought that Warren was one of the best prosecutors in the country. Uh, he also was against uh, the one-person, one-vote uh, legislative districts while he was governor of California. So in a lot of issues, he, as a judge on the court, uh, ruled differently than he had as a politician in California. So he kind of surprised people uh, in terms of how liberal he turned out to be uh, on the Supreme Court. And he leads this revolution on the court. And I would argue, uh, you know, the 60s have been so well documented, but and there's so many dramatic moments in that era that I think the court has been overlooked outside of Brown v. Board. The court's all been overlooked. But I would argue until LBJ comes into office and the Great Society uh, Congress of the mid-1960s, that Earl Warren was probably the leading uh, liberal in America in terms of what he was able to accomplish through the court. Um, and from a liberal uh, public policy standpoint. So he left behind this huge legacy, but also very controversial legacy, because as much as liberals championed him, and that included Presidents Kennedy and especially Johnson, uh, conservatives condemned him. Uh, they accused him of being acting like a legislator rather than a court. They accused him of stretching the Constitution beyond its uh, proper meaning, uh, of creating an activist judicial institution. And these are not just uh, Republicans or conservatives in the political branches, conservatives within the court, like Felix Frankfurter, who was appointed by FDR. So he wasn't particularly very conservative ideologically, but conservative in terms of his jurisprudence. Um, they also heavily criticized Warren for stretching the court beyond what anyone thought the court should be able to do. So he became this very controversial figure um, and he was targeted, as I said, with lots of speeches condemning him and criticizing him. Some of it was outlandish. Um, the right-wing group, the John Burt Society, in the 1960s had this impeach Warren campaign, and they had billboards all over the country. Uh, so he was this, like I said, real, real lightning rod because of what he was able to accomplish for some people seen as great accomplishments and by others seen in a very negative light. Could you take us through some of the accomplishments and tell us, tell us too, um, is, in your research, did you find anything um, about his ideological evolution from a middle-of-the-road uh, Republican governor to someone who was rep really uh, a liberal revolutionary on the court? Sure. Um, I would say in terms of his rulings, you know, we all kind of know about Brown v. Board and the and desegregation, but in terms of civil rights beyond Brown, the Warren court repeatedly stood on the side of civil rights advocates. So there are a host of other rulings that are, have been forgotten in the popular understanding of that era. 
but they shielded the Freedom Riders, they shielded the protesters, they shielded the NAACP from intimidation. Uh, whenever the civil rights bills that were finally passed in the 60s, whenever they were tested, uh, scrutinized under the Constitution, the Warren Court um, protected them from constitutional scrutiny as well. So you have this huge uh, number of rulings in, in civil rights that go beyond uh, Brown. But then you have these other areas that have kind of been forgotten now. One of the big ones that really surprised me were what were called Red Monday rulings. In 56 and 57, the Warren Court put an end to the excesses of McCarthyism, the, the loyalty laws, the blacklist, and uh, the, the really heavy, strenuous investigations that were ruining people's lives, whether done by the executive branch or the state governments or by Congress. And uh, a series of these rulings were called Red Monday by the court's critics. And, but they really played a big role in not just, uh, like I said, for civil rights advocates, but they played a big role in protecting people's constitutional rights outside of the, the typical um, rulings that we remember from that era. And then in the 60s, you get the law and order rulings like at Miranda and Gideon v. Wainwright that start to shield um, usually criminal defendants from what the Warren Court thought were unfair police tactics or unfair prosecutorial tactics. And in that case, in, you know, Court Warren was accused of hypocrisy because he and his, uh, the people who had worked under him in California when he was a prosecutor had often used, uh, relied upon these same tactics. So people wondered, well, why, you know, if it was okay for him then, why isn't it okay for all these other police districts now that he's on the court? And besides the law and order rulings, you also have the ban on school prayer, which was a 1962 ruling. And that's a practice that dated back to the colonial era. And it ended up being the court's most unpopular ruling. About 80% of Americans approved of prayer in public schools, but the court had said it, it violated the Constitution and put a stop to it. Uh, so that really made the court unpopular among evangelicals and social conservatives. And then you get the one person one vote legislative districts, which basically rejiggered uh, almost every legislative district in the country, both at the state level as well as the, the federal level. And that upset a lot of people as well. So you have all these rulings that upset various parts of, 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 of American society. And one more that I'll mention, and this ties back into how it was used against Florida, so the obscenity rulings. Uh, you have a real culture clash in the 60s, right? You have the sexual revolution and Playboy magazine is the second most subscribed magazine of the era. At the same time, about three-quarters of Americans wanted to ban uh, adult magazines or movies from their community. So you have this real cultural clash going on, and the court was stuck in the middle in terms of trying to balance the First Amendment rights of, of the people making or distributing these materials versus that of the communities who wanted to keep them away from, from the, their kids and their, and their families and so on. And the court got stuck in the middle, and uh, it's a very convoluted uh, jurisprudence, but either way, it again became a source of criticism and controversy. Uh, going back to the second part of your question, how he changed, you know, no one has figured out exactly why he went from being a middle-of-the-road Republican to being this uh, liberal revolutionary. Uh, his closest friends suspect that he got to see uh, these issues in a new light, in a more, let's say, uh, platonic guardian way where he got to see both sides of the issue rather than 
just from the standpoint of being the governor or being a prosecutor, and that he actually grew as a person. Um, he started to see, oh, wait a minute, if you don't have equal-sized legislative districts, then you have a warped democracy. You have it where uh, a small county in California with 30,000, 40,000 people has the same number of representatives in the state government as Los Angeles County, for instance. So he started to see, uh, as he grew older, wait a minute, that's unfair. And then the final thing was, he really had this place in his heart for the little guy, for the person who was powerless, uh, and that dated back to his upbringing in Bakersfield, uh, California. And so a lot of these seminal cases, they actually grew out of people just writing letters to the court, uh, representing themselves. Um, and it is well said that a lot of justices would have said, well, they're not following proper procedures and look at the format they're using. You know, the court has very specific um, guidelines for how you can file an appeal. And they were, these would just be letters written by prisoners, for instance. Uh, but he told his clerks, you know what, we're here to protect those who are powerless, those who don't have access to great lawyers and lobbyists and the ear of a politician. And so that's something that was there early in his life, but that really didn't show up in his public policy and his public life until he joined the court. And I would say that's probably the best explanation for his transformation. Moving on to President Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, uh, he was a wartime president. Uh, he was also very uh, progressive in the area of social policy, sort of wanted to extend the New Deal uh, with the great, uh, with his great society, uh, war on poverty programs. What was his vision for shaping uh, the Supreme Court? All right, great question. Um, he, he wanted a couple of things from the court. One, he wanted to continue the Warren Court's liberal jurisprudence. And because he saw what the court was able to do outside of what Congress and the, and the executive branch couldn't do. For instance, mandating one person, one vote. Uh, that, was, that was something that couldn't really be done through the legislative process. You almost needed either a constitutional amendment or the Supreme Court to do it. He also wanted the court to protect his legislative accomplishments. He had remembered, as you said, the New Deal, he remembered what happened to FDR in the first term of his presidency, where uh, the court kept striking down a lot of the New Deal legislation. Johnson knew all of these bills, whether it was the civil rights bills or the creation of environmental laws or um, war and poverty and so on, Medicaid, Medicare. He knew these would be tested in the courts, and he wanted to make sure that there were justices there that would shield those legislative accomplishments from constitutional scrutiny. So those were his kind of twin visions of the court, continue its liberal legacy, but also protect my legislative accomplishments, uh, even after, you know, he leaves the White House. Richard Nixon uh, campaigns for the presidency in 1968, and he makes the court uh, a big subject of his uh, campaign, uh, specifically uh, the issue of law and order. I think he writes in Reader's Digest magazine that the court is responsible for the criminal forces or partially responsible for the criminal forces winning against the peace forces in American society. Um, specifically though, uh, did Nixon during the campaign have a vision uh, for the way the court would be shaped ideologically? And what did he, what specifically did he want to be challenged um, in terms of previous decisions and in terms of uh, rulings? or in terms of legislation by the, 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 um, 
the Congress and the Johnson administration before him? Right. That, that's a great question. Um, in terms of his campaign, you are right in that he campaigned heavily against the Warren court. And that was something that had not been done other than Barry Goldwater in 1964. And I always give people a great example. Uh, you have FDR, again, going back to the New Deal. He's very upset with the Supreme Court striking down his bills. And he, he has this horse and buggy speech uh, condemning the Supreme Court in the 30s. But yet in the 1936 election, he does not campaign against the court, even as other Democrats urge him to. He doesn't make it a campaign issue. So this was something that was new and different, uh, starting with Barry Goldwater, but really being ratcheted up by Richard Nixon in 1968. Um, and law and order was the primary issue that Nixon focused on. In terms of his vision for the court, I would say his, he had a nascent view of what he wanted the court to look like during the election. And it was really once he got elected that that nascent view really started to um, get fixed in stone, if you will, that really developed and matured. And I think a lot of that is because during the election, it's not something he had too much time to think about. But the things he wanted were he wanted justices who were at the time called strict constructionists, people who would follow the letter of the law and the direct meaning of the Constitution and not stretch the Constitution, if you will, uh, to apply to these new areas. And that was a big criticism of the Warren Court. And that was something that Felix Frankfurter, uh, John Marshall Harlan, the conservatives on the court were strict constructionists. So Nixon wanted more justices like that. Uh, he also wanted justices who would be tough on crime, who would perhaps either undo or at least uh, reduce some of the rulings like Miranda. Uh, and then finally, in terms of uh, what he had told the Southern congressmen and Southern audiences was he was willing, he wanted to appoint justices who would be more favorable to a gradual uh, desegregation. Uh, he, he was not going to try to uh, undo Brown. He said, you know, that's, that's not something he wanted to do, and that's not something that was feasible. But he did want to appoint justices who would see how difficult that would be in the, in the eyes of Southerners and who would be more sympathetic to uh, what Southerners might view on Brown. So those are, those are the main things. I would say jurisprudentially it was the strict constructionist, people who would kind of follow the letter of the law more closely and wouldn't be judicial activists. They would kind of refrain from uh, deciding cases on all these different areas of life that the Warren Court was willing to to decide upon. So that was, that was his big vision uh, for the court. And then the last thing I would say is he also had a long-term vision uh, for what the court can accomplish. Um, there was a memo he had uh, received early in his presidency from uh, one of his aides, a man named Tom Houston, and it said uh, the appointment to the court is one of the least considered aspects of presidential power and that it could impact uh, American life way past a president's term in office. So Nixon took that to heart. He wanted people who were young enough to serve a long time and who had the ideology that matched his vision. Uh, he didn't want to pick mistakes such as Eisenhower, uh, who ended up picking William Brennan and Earl Warren, who were very liberal. He didn't want to make ideological errors as his predecessors had. And it's not just Eisenhower. Harry Truman as well picked uh, justices who didn't match his ideology. So Nixon was conscientious of that, and he was conscientious of how you could impact American society in the long term by picking the right kind of justice. So I would say that was his 
overall vision. In an earlier podcast, we um, talked with one guest about the four uh, justices he appointed, uh, Justice Warren Berger, uh, Justice Harry Blackman, uh, Lewis Powell, and William Rehnquist. Out of the four, there's really one conservative uh, on the court. But it's been said, it's been written that these justices, like you said, reduce the scope of Miranda, uh, even reduce the scope of uh, other areas of criminal uh, law decided by the Warren Court, including the exclusionary rule in MAP versus Ohio. Could you give us a sort of an overview about what the court did to, I guess, restrain judicial liberalism in the areas of criminal law and also shape public policy and other matters? Right. Well, that, that's a very big question. First, first, let me say in terms of the people he appointed, how conservative they were. Uh, they were conservative by the standards of that day. Um, that the, I, I think the country as a whole and the Republican Party has become more conservative since the late 60s. Um, so I think they were pretty good conservatives by that day. William Rehnquist would be the one person who would be conservative under today's um, units of measurement, if you will, as well. Uh, the other thing is there weren't many conservative or Republican judges available to appoint to the Supreme Court. I, I just read a memo um, a few weeks ago, I was, I was looking through some of my old documents, and there's a list early in Nixon's presidency of Republican uh, judges on state Supreme Courts as well as the appellate courts. And in terms of federal appellate courts, judges under the age of 60, and as I said, he wanted someone young who could serve for a long time, there's about a half dozen Republican uh, uh, judges out there. So he didn't have a big pool of people to pick from. Uh, in terms of uh, finding, you know, rock-ribbed and reliable conservatives. So I would say that's uh, that's one of the things Nixon had to contend with, that he just didn't have a big pool of, of people there that he could put on the court, and he, he kind of tried to do the best he could with the roster of jurists that were out there. Uh, in terms of the, the accomplishments of the Burger Court, you know, a lot of those accomplishments, uh, they come very gradually because it takes – a while for the liberals on the court to lose their majority, uh, and it takes a while for uh, the the court and the country as a whole to turn more conservative. Uh, in the criminal procedure uh, area, uh, a lot of what happens is they kind of put an end to these new protections to criminal defendants. So in a way, uh, I see the Burger Court as the, the backstop. It ends the Warren Court's liberal legacy. It doesn't necessarily begin a very strong conservative legacy. It does that to some extent, but not necessarily as conservative as uh, later uh, the court became later on, but it does put an end to that liberal legacy. Um, so that's, that's the way I view it. And then in areas that we don't normally think about, because they're not hot button issues, but areas of antitrust and regulation, uh, you see the court becoming more and more conservative. And that plays out in later years in how the economy is regulated, on how the federal agencies function, and how antitrust enforcement works, for instance. So a lot of that legacy, to me, of the Burger Court specifically, before we get to the Rehnquist Court of the, you know, starting in the mid-80s and the Roberts Court now, is that it's, it establishes the roots for the eventual conservative takeover of the court. Uh, and so it's not something that takes place immediately, but it sort of sets the roots, establishes the roots, and the seedlings bud and then blossom into 
the Rehnquist Court and especially the Roberts Court of the last uh, 15 or so years. Our guest today is Michael Babelian, contributing writer of Forbes.com and author of Battle for the Marble Palace, Abe Fortas, Earl Warren, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Forging of the Modern Supreme Court. Michael Babelian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroidis and your Belinda.